everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Cappy. Ooh, yay. So today on the show, we are going to discuss the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial a little bit later in the show. But first, by the way, I just wanted to mention that we are going to Monster Palooza and that I will soon have a photo with Kane Hodder in costume. I'm already preparing for uh, EMS to be there. <laughs> we have, I'm, I'm not going to give everything away. For me to we're, faint. <laughs> we're doing some really cool stuff there that we're not even going to say yet. Of we'll course. talk about it when we get back. But yeah. There are some great photo ops and great. Oh my gosh, so much great stuff. We're going to lose the house. Like we're going to just <laughs> lose our cars. There's I've a lot to I've already canceled all purchased. my subscriptions yes. in, order to, yeah. <laughs> in order to afford. And it's not even just the photo ops because, you know, those are whatever. But yeah. the, the amount of like merch mm-hmm. and tables and the list of people oh my gosh. and like companies that are going to be there. I don't understand honestly how they get away with only being open from 11 to six on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, I they're open on from Friday. six to 11 yeah. on Friday. So, you know, but still, but I, I mean, I'm a fan cause I don't want to do anything really before 11 AM, but right. also like it'll give us a chance to have breakfast and hang out yeah. and, 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 and maybe look at the, um, the map <laughs> for the day. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be like some chill out time, maybe some, creative zhuzh going on maybe we'll talk excitedly about what we're going to do with the podcast in the future but anyway we're looking forward to that i I have uh, one more photo op that i'm you know we each picked like one we're doing together and then we're doing one separately Mm -hmm. and i'm going back and forth it's almost like when you're um trick-or-treating as a kid and (laughs) they put the bowl out and they're like choose one and i'm like but i want snickers or reese's (laughs) like how i mean they're all good how do i you know but it's like between 50 and 100 bucks for a photo op so it's like you really do need to pick and choose yeah and like you said we didn't want to be in line all day doing no i don't want to be in line all day and yeah they strategically just, time it, but you know you're still going to wait a little bit. So of course, and they yeah. tell you to get there 30 minutes early mm-hmm. so that you're you know you don't waiting miss out. And whatever, waiting but, and waiting. Yeah, there's going to be some waiting. Uh, but I also like there's so much other stuff I want to do there that totally. I don't want to waste my all my time because I also a lot of the people that are there do the circuit. So yeah, you can get your picture with them some other place. But anyway, and if you're in LA. And you see us with our Terror Talk stuff going on. Yeah. Come say hi. Let yeah, us know if you're, you're going to be at Monster Palooza, you know, hit us up on social media prior and we can meet, meet, up up. With, meet up with you for lunch or something. I think you have a mental health piece that you were going to share today with the people. I do. Cool. Um, I thought, you know, I actually read this to my students and we had a discussion around it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, today we're going to be talking about a case uh, with a lot of different, I always say to my, my students, it doesn't mean anything without context, <laughs> right? Right. So we know that since the 1950s, the way that we look at mental health in teenagers now, that statistically teenagers have the same rate of anxiety and depression as patients in hospitals in the 1950s. Okay. Okay. And so we have to look at why, mm-hmm. not just, okay, here's a number and you know, they're, 
you know, we make guesses. There's sure. a really great article that came out um, on the Atlantic.com. You can find it on Atlantic.com. It's from the Atlantic. It's from this year. It's from April. So it's a new article. And it's called Why American Teens Are So Sad. Mm. And I, I want to make sure, too, that we are taking all of this into context because I am going to talk about how social media plays a role. I am going to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to go through this fairly, it's going to be brief, but none of this is all or nothing because we also know that things like social media can also save lives. And we know that people feeling like they have other people who understand all of that stuff can be used as a protective factor as well, but that's not the type of online and social media and screen stuff I'm going to be talking about from this article. So they talk about several different reasons why this is happening, um, but also the fallacies that are also there as well. And so the first fallacy is that we can chalk this all up to teens behaving badly. They're bad kids now. No, they're no different. The, the brains are still the same. Mm -hmm. It's just a different culture. So that's not, that's not why. The second fallacy is that teens have always been moody and sadness looks like it is rising only because people are more willing to talk about it. Also not true. Um, teens are moody, but that's not what this is about. And then the third fallacy is that today's mental health crisis was principally caused by the pandemic and the overaction to COVID. And that is not true either because we started to see an influx of this before the pandemic. So the first one that she talks about is social media use. Okay. Five years ago, um, there was an influential and controversial feature in the Atlantic titled have smartphones destroyed a generation. And they go on to just discuss how um, the access to things online and the way that things are portrayed online will certainly make teens and kids believe that everybody else's life is perfect or you have to look a certain way as adults. We know don't believe everything you see online, but teenagers use this as a way of comparing their lives and comparing themselves to one another. And that's become a huge problem. It's also a way that teens can commiserate if there isn't a mediator or someone there like a mental health person or an adult to say, this is, you know, not the case. Um, number two is being social is down. <laughs> um, I see this a lot. I don't work as with as many teens anymore, but I, this is a big one for me is we're just seeing people hide behind screens all day. Um, and all of, all of their social time is online or, or through DMing or things like that. They're not getting out as much. Now we can say that that's been exacerbated by the pandemic, but it was certainly going on before that. Sure. So it says compared with their counterparts in 2000, in the 2000s, today's teens are less likely to go out with their friends, get their drivers, driver's license or play youth sports. I just had a session with a client of mine and his mom last week, and he's a freshman in college and he doesn't want to get his driver's license. And this is something that I'm seeing quite a bit because it's like, why not? You can just get an Uber, you know? Yeah. That's been super common for probably 15 years. Honestly, kids I've known mm. that don't get their drivers don't need to get their driver's license till their mid twenties. Yeah, I've never uh, when I grew up in Michigan that was not the case. Like mine when, either. Yeah, so <gasps> 16, I haven't noticed boom, it. I haven't I noticed on. it for fifteen years, but I've certainly noticed mm -hmm. it in the last five mm -hmm. for sure. Um, the world is stressful, and there are there's more news about world stressors, so they just have so much more access. When I think about when I was a teen or a kid, we didn't get 
constant news feed, even stuff that we didn't want, just plugging in our Facebook, plugging in our so they're they're saturated with stuff that they don't need to be seeing twenty four seven. Absolutely, um, you know. Being up to date on current events is one thing. Being saturated by it is is not good. Uh, modern parenting strategies. In the past 40 years, American parents, especially those with a college degree, have nearly doubled the amount of time they spend coaching, chauffeuring, tutoring, and otherwise helping their teenage children. So I have noticed this. I don't know if you have, Shannon, because I know we work in, with different areas and your your kids are, some of them don't even have parents or they're super high risk or there's other things going on. But I work in a very like affluent uh, area and parents oftentimes still treat them like they're in elementary school and really cater to every single need. And these kids really have very low tolerance for any distress or discomfort. Um, and that's a massive problem. And those are pretty much the main ones that they, they talk about. So just some things to think about because it's really easy to look at a teenager and say, you're lazy, get over yourself. This is your fault. But there's just a lot more stress for teens this at this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. On that note, I have some true crime shenanigans to share with you. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an 18 year old who stabbed his mom over a cheeseburger. So, you know, speaking of teens in distress. Yeah, it's because they're moody. (laughs) He was very moody. He was very moody. So police arrested 18-year-old Aaron Dean. He's been charged with one count of felonious assault after an initial court appearance. (laughs) So this was in May of two years ago. So pretty much like right after COVID hit, I think, like May 2020. A Toledo woman is out of the hospital after her son stabbed her over a cheeseburger at an apartment building in Toledo, Ohio. Police arrested 18-year-old Aaron Dean. He has been charged with one count of felonious assault. I said that already. So police say Dean choked and stabbed his mom because she didn't bring him a cheeseburger. Dean's mom says when she walked in the front door, her son asked her where his food was. And I'm like, boy, you just sat there and ate. He's like, you can't bring none in here without bringing me something to eat. In other words, like, don't come home unless you give me some food. So he just smacked my burger out of my hand, and then we got to fighting. Dean ended up in the jail and then had to go back to court. But, you know, burgers. But he's hungry. I also wanted to mention this story. Arkansas woman murdered by the same person who murdered her mother 23 years ago. Oh, God. I know, right? You know, awful. So almost. That's that's like Halloween. I know, right? It's like a movie. It sounds like a movie. Almost 23 years after an Arkansas mother was murdered by a 16 year old, the convicted killer allegedly killed her daughter. Wow. Deputies from the Crichton County Sheriff's Office responded to a call at the historic Snowden house in Horseshoe Lake, where they saw a possible suspect fleeing the property. Police located a possible suspect who jumped from an upstairs window and ran to a vehicle that he drove across the yard and got stuck in the yard at the Snowden house. Oh, my God. The suspect then jumped from the car and ran and jumped into the lake, because that makes sense. He was observed going under the water and never came back up. So he must have swum away, I guess. Authorities found the body of 63-year-old Martha McKay inside the house and alleged, and the alleged killer's body was recovered from the water. There you go. This he is died. a book. He died, right? Both bodies were sent to the state's medical examiner's office to determine the cause and manner of death. So the police identified the alleged killer as 39-year-old Travis Lewis, 
who was on parole since 2018 for the September 1996 murder of McKay's mother and another relative. Lewis, who was 16 at the time and tried as an adult for the murders, allegedly killed McKay inside the same crime scene, same house. He, wait, hold on. Before you go any further, he was on parole I'm done. after three years? He was on parole 1996. Oh, 96. And was on parole in 2018. I see. Okay. Yeah. So Lewis, who was 16 at the time, tried as an adult. Yeah, he was tried as an adult, which people are obviously starting back in the 80s, actually. Mm -hmm. Alleged killed McKay inside the same crime scene. So that was going to be my point is the same house Mm -hmm. 23 years ago. The investigation is still ongoing. So. I wonder what this guy's motive is. But like, what does he have with this family? Yeah, it makes you curious to learn more about the story. Huh? I almost wonder, too, if because the daughter's trial was successful mm-hmm. and she put him away that he came back for revenge. Yes, I'd be very curious to know, except yeah. for now he's died in he the is, lake. We, we don't know. We won't know that part. I'm going with that story. You never know. It might be an interesting trial or story to very Friday the 13th. lean into. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be right back after the break. We're going to dip our toe into talking about Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard and the trials that are going on. As of this recording, they're only about halfway through the trial. May so, I ask a question? Of course. Are we doing any horror facts today? Well, we can. Okay. All right. So the next segment we'd like to do is a little thing called... <laughs> Go for it. Number one, mm-hmm. Misery was almost turned into a Broadway play. What famous actor was asked to play Annie Wilkes? Okay. King vetoed this idea because she did not fit the brawny profile. <laughs> brawny in quotes. Too skinny, huh? Probably too famous, too beautiful, and too skinny. King said no. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Number two. When composer John Williams originally played the score for Steven Spielberg, what was Spielberg's reaction? Oh, <laughs> okay. Ready? Yep. Number three. In the 1800s, how were dentures made? <laughs> I don't even want to know. Ew. <laughs> it's a horror fact. Uh, it sure is. Okay. this is kind of a funny one number four how many different sounds can a cat make Mm. (laughs) a lot okay and this one's kind of funny too what part of the body are all babies born without ah okay i bet a lot of those moms we're actually recording this on mother's day so (laughs) you're gonna listen to it after mother's day but Oh, that's appropriate. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Kathy. We will be right back to talk about the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. We'll be right back. Hey there, we're back. Hello. 
Yeah, here we are. I know I had to take a breath. Okay, we are going to talk about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and what's going on in the very the court of public opinion. We've been watching bits and pieces of the testimony. I wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer that both Kathy and I do not know these people. We're not working on the case. We have no intimate knowledge of either party or anyone involved in the case, really. And also, I have not watched every moment of every piece of testimony. And I'm not acutely aware of Amber Heard or Johnny Depp uh, personally before all of their personal details are being revealed in the public. And so I just want to let you know that we've we've only gotten about halfway through the trial as this is being recorded. So we will follow up after all is said and done and verdicts are had and all those things. And we'll follow up to either, you know, disagree with ourselves (laughs) or say that, oh, well, these new things kind of shifted the way I felt or whatever. So just like you guys, we come to this table with a certain amount of personal bias, you know, our experiences from our personal life, because we're people too, and also professional bias, you know, the populations that both Kathy and I work with might have, not might, they definitely have influence over how we side in things and how we look at things and maybe how, you know, we'll, we might see something and go like, oh, definitely not because of our bias and our our experiences with population. So we just want to throw that out there. From now on, we're just going to talk about what we think. And Kathy's going to speak from experience being a forensic psychologist. And I will speak from experience being a therapist. Excellent. That's right. a nice little introduction you gave. I tried. That was all improvised. Yeah, yeah. totally. She's out of breath. <laughs> it's, it's a hefty case, though. There's so been so much going on. And there's so, like, you know, you and I did a lot of preparation for this and it's almost overwhelming. It it really was. I really, when we, when I first started to look at it because we, we decided to do this pretty quickly because it was like, all right, well, Mm -hmm. we got to do this. And, and some of our listeners were asking, you know, we had commented on Will Smith and the psychology going on Mm -hmm. there. And then I got a bunch of emails saying like, hello, please, (laughs) this is happening. Please talk about this particular topic. And it's like, okay. Cause you know, we haven't always been, people who take the court cases or the true crime cases that that we're seeing like unfold that aren't actually you know 25 years old or whatever we haven't really been doing that kind of hot topic stuff and so we only just started doing that and um it's been interesting because as soon as we started doing it everyone's like yeah do more of that Mm -hmm. so here we are yeah Right. So where would you like to begin? Well, I guess first I I just want to give some somewhat of an outline to what these cases kind of look like and Perfect. how how this gets set up. So maybe as we fill that in, give it yeah. some meat, mm-hmm. people have an idea of what the how the, these cases are organized. So, you know, first of all, we want to we want to keep in mind that this is a defamation hearing which has Obviously, there's a relevance to figuring out whether Johnny has been abusive towards Amber because they're saying if if he's only done it one time, then her defamation is, you know, legit or whatever. But we want to look at what this hearing actually is. When you go to trial and someone is suing or accusing, there's almost like a like a, a trial focus or a hearing focus. And when you're watching this, it can get really confusing because they're talking about all these things. And what we really have to focus on is, is there enough evidence 
to convict Amber of defamation, which is why the the domestic violence and the abuse stuff has become sent, such a central focus. But it's really like a subcategory of what this hearing is actually about. So first, we have to know like what is what what is it that we're actually asking. Then we have to look at, okay, we have two people who have their stories and their experience. And then we have what are called fact witnesses and we have expert witnesses. Okay. So I've been both on cases and a fact witness is, is someone like the couple's counselor. That would be someone who is actually treating the client or clients and they are testifying to the work that they are doing with this person or people, what they have seen as much as they can be objective. And this is why it's important to take really good notes, because my guess would be that her notes have been subpoenaed, which means she has to present them prior to her even testifying. And my understanding is she only testified in the deposition and the deposition is pre-trial. It's what helps the attorneys prepare for what they actually want to get deeper in the trial. So they'll have like a preliminary trial where the deposition is just basically sitting down at a table with the attorneys and they're firing questions at the different witnesses. Okay. And then as this is all forming, both sides gets to interview experts if they choose to, not everyone has to have an expert, but in this case we had Dr. Hughes as Amber's forensic psychologist and Dr. Uh, Shannon Curry as Johnny's forensic psychologist I have not, my disclaimer is I've only read Dr. Hughes's testimony. I was able to watch Dr. Curry's testimony. When you are called upon as an expert, you are making a decision based on information that has been provided to you about the case. You as the expert are allowed to get as much information and you should have as much information, even if that includes getting information from the other side in order to make as unbiased of an opinion about your assessment as you can. These two psychologists are not people who have ever treated them, but have been hired because after vetting the initial quote unquote facts, Curry said, I'm on board and can defend Johnny based on what I have seen. And Dr. Hughes says the same about Amber. According to Dr. Hughes, she spent 29 hours with Amber evaluating. I don't know how much of that is actual interview versus psychological assessment or testing. And Dr. Curry said that she spent about like 19 hours with Amber. Okay. Both of them had very different opinions, which is why, why we have one on each side. Mm -hmm. So people understand in this initial process, the psychologist will make an opinion that's just their initial opinion that says, because I've seen enough of this, I will go ahead and come on as your witness. Dr. Curry was really, uh, the attorney tried to really collude that by stating, well, you know, you had made all these accusations about Amber before you ever evaluated her. And Dr. Curry was like, no, I had made a statement based on why I should be 
on this side of the fence. Right. And okay? I just want to comment super mm-hmm. quick, just yeah. because I happen to know yeah. that Dr. Curry, whose first name happens to be Shannon, it thank is. you very much. <laughs> just kidding. Who cares? Said that the diagnosis that she came up with came from, so just to comment, yeah. she uh, reviewed previous psychological assessments. She also did direct examination on two right. occasions and she did the MMPI with her. Yes. And so, th- so what Shannon's talking about is really important. So one of the things that is absolutely essential when we're interviewing um, anybody that we might be testifying on or or against their their stance is the use of what we call collateral information or contact. So the interview is what you, what you actually do that face to face questioning. I don't know if I believe that Dr. Hughes actually did twenty nine hours of that to be <laughs> totally honest, but um, the rest of it then is doing psych testing, looking at previous psychological records, and reaching out to people in that person's life that could serve as what we call a character witness that could speak to, and Johnny has several of these, you know, past relationships that basically stated that they don't have any uh, memory of him being abusive, angry, substance using, yes, but not to the degree that Amber's talking about. So these are all things that need to be taken into consideration when someone's making their opinion. Clinical interview just taught, let's say I was, and now I'm talking about Shannon, Terror Talk Shannon. If I were to sit here and interview Terror Talk Shannon for three hours, I'm going to automatically have somewhat of a bias just because I bring in whatever I'm, my, maybe I'm triggered by something that she says, maybe she reminds me of something, without me looking at her records, talking to other people and doing assessment my clinical interview is only as accurate as a flip of a coin. So we have to, you know, I just want to be clear on how these psychologists get this information, how they make their opinion should be weighted on a lot of different things. And one more thing I'll say before then we get into this is Dr. Curry was accused of not being board certified board certification. I thought that was hilarious. Okay. And first of all, there's two parts of why this is hilarious. First of all, I've testified many times. I'm not board certified. Board certified just means that you have taken an extra certification, which is very credible. I know people who have, it's called an ABAP, an ABPP, and you get an extra certification within your field. So if she's an ABAP in forensic psychology, it just means that she's taken extensive classes and taken a test that now she's board certified. However, Board certification in this case is irrelevant for this reason. Domestic violence is not a clinical term. It's a legal term. Psychologists are only required to take three units of DV in order to get their license. This is one of the biggest arguments I have when I go to trial. Domestic violence is a concentration that someone chooses to go into in their field but is not a prerequisite to becoming a mental health clinician. Yeah, like being an expert in that type of thing comes from years and years of That's testimony right. and research, not from our schooling. 100%. Or and our license. So I will say, when they ask me on the stand, I'll say, I teach it. I've done presentations on it. I've done continuing education on it. And it's a big part of my population pool. Mm-hmm. That's really what matters. And Dr. Curry has that experience. So- these are all these little ways that they've tried the, the media, um, not the media that the, that 
uh, Amber's side has tried to discredit her. But I have to say, and I know we'll start to talk about this, I really liked her testimony and the way that she handled herself. <laughs> I'm kind of team Curry. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, so, no, the media generally yeah. liked it too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just what wanted to- What did you to, like about it? Um, I, I'm curious. So I, as, okay, so first From of all- From someone who testifies yes, in court. Yes, and I'm watching her testimony and my heart is racing because I've been her. <laughs> of course. Okay. And I'm course. feeling them get. So there's a the bias, right? A that bias. we're talking about. Yeah. And I'm feeling them get petty and asking questions that an <laughs> untrained eye or ear would find to be really relevant mm-hmm. and are only strategies to mm-hmm. derail from she knows her shit. Yeah. And she handled it of course. so well, but she also, there is a little part of her that's like me on the stand where I'm cool as a cucumber, but you can also tell when I'm not going to deal with your bullshit. And I start to go, I mean, I disagree, but that's fine. You know, it's like there, you get to sort of a certain point and because you see the agenda. Yes. And I, and I did like how Curry was using the alternate tactics, right? Of yeah. slowing her down. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. What page? Yeah. Oh, oh I do you that. lost me. I've oh, taken da, da, da. sips of water. And then finally, before. the lawyer, of course, fights back by this is two females, right? This is like the female lawyer and a female yeah. testifier. And then the lawyer kind of fights back by going, like, well, if you're lost, I'll read it for you. She tries to like condescend oh, sure. to her. Yeah. And then Shannon sort of like laughs or whatever. <laughs> But, and then she just kept do, keeps doing it like, oh, yeah, you lost me. I don't know what page you're on. So I mean, yeah, and, and, and she's Dr. <laughs> Which Curry, is an interesting tactic as well. It is. And the, and the, the experts and the, the attorneys will kind of do that back and forth with one another. There's there's been times where I've played that game. They get game buried right in the little minutiae that makes sure. us, the rest of us totally agitated. Yeah. And, and she's, you know, she's a Pepperdine Malibu graduate, Dr. Curry, straight out of L.A. So we got like that. <laughs> right over there. Um, but anyway, so I just wanted to use that as a setup so people kind of understood that's what goes into, you know, right. and, I, and I obviously watered that down quite a bit. Well, but. and I also want to mention, because I mentioned Curry too, like I, I want to mention that Don Hughes reviewed records related to her mental health. So I'm sure she reviewed her therapy yep. notes and all of that mm-hmm. and did lengthy questionnaires and a lengthy clinical interview mm-hmm. uh, over Zoom two different times. Mm-hmm. And she also talks about PTSD and all of that. And there's a lot of information about how she did use a testing component, but a lot of the information doesn't mention what she used. I'm not right. sure if it was in her testimony or not. I'm sure it was. It's interesting how the the stuff for Curry is like real clear about what she did mm-hmm. and the stuff for Hughes is not It's as evasive much. and even the way yeah. that they get to her diagnosis of PTSD and I'll let you talk on this Shannon because you and I we've talked about like really it's hard to meet the thresholds for PTSD and the only thing that I will say and I'm going to let you take over here in a moment is People with PTSD or complex post-traumatic stress, complex post-traumatic stress is not a technical diagnosis, but it's a, it's a derivative of PTSD. It tends to be more relational. Um, my And I can only speak from my experience and my clients is that they are so traumatized and so petrified that they would never think of calling out their perpetrator like that if they were that terrified. Uh, I've never seen that. They're usually hiding. They're writing in cryptic. Uh, they're writing cryptic emails to me that I have to encode. They are so afraid. Well, and honestly, Depp is exhibiting more in some ways. It's 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 really subtle in his testimony because if you watch like his micro expressions and stuff, it's it's sort of subtle. He's he's exhibiting some PTSD as well. Like there's a moment in the testimony when they're talking and you all, if you're interested in this case, you all have probably watched it. The clips from when he's talking about when he hurt his finger, he is stating that Amber heard 
threw the big bottle of vodka at him and severed his finger, etc. And then in the trial, he's he's looking at the picture and he and there's a moment where he goes, oh, and he kind of smiles and laughs and they go, what what are you responding to? And he says, oh, I'm just seeing something in the picture that that I hadn't remembered. And it was that she had, well, he's alleging that she had put her cigarette out on his face and he's in the picture, he's seen the mark. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because just watching his, his micro expressions, you can see that he's genuinely, I realize he's an actor, but you can kind of tell the difference when he's Mm -hmm. embellishing stories and when he's not just by his facial expressions, but you can kind of tell that he's, he's remembering it and that so so people that have a lot of combative behavior in their relationships, and I'm not saying they're not mutually combative because I can see that they are, obviously, when they have a lot of it, you don't, for, like, I'm not going to forget someone putting a cigarette on, on my face. Mm-hmm. No matter how many, how much drugs or alcohol I'm imbibing, me personally, because I don't have that kind of relationship, I'm not going to forget if you put a, right. but he, for, he literally forgets right. that was part of the altercation. So there's parts of this that, that, kind of speak to both of them having that yeah a lot of trauma yeah and i mean i know they both have a lot of trauma in their backgrounds but i'm just saying like watching him testify i can see it there too like i said this is personal not professional but i don't personally believe that johnny depp has a personality disorder i don't either anyway you were gonna have me speak to ptsd oh yeah no i just i you know i I knew that you'd have some some comments on that and watching him. Uh, I, I also find her really difficult to watch when she testifies. And, and I again, my disclaimer here is I have no idea whether she was ever sexually assaulted and I am never no. making that claim. All I'm simply stating is her delivery feels so phony to me that it's hard for me to have empathy for her. Yeah, we're just commenting on the behavior we're reading. And yeah. and, and honestly, it's it, she's she's hard to watch in testimony. And I think those are some personal triggers as well. Yeah. I, I obviously haven't diagnosed her, but I know mm-hmm. that uh, Dr. Curry came up with, you know, two different cluster B personality disorders, both histrionic and borderline. And so if that's accurate... That's, that's what a, we're seeing. That's, that's a cluster that's going to be hard to watch. She's going to be unlikable in general in this situation. In other situations, like a party or a meeting her socially, she's probably going to be extremely charismatic and, and interesting. And she's obviously a very attractive woman by, mm-hmm. by our cultural standards and all of that. So, so I can understand how how alluring all of that is, but in this context where she's trying to hold it all back, you're going to see those personality traits like get pushed, especially on the stand under pressure. And if she does have some form of PTSD or trauma, you're going to see that you know married into all of that. And she's going to be difficult to watch for most people. Yeah. My most disturbing parts are watching her reactions to yes. Johnny Depp because, yes. again, the micro expressions. There's a few times where she does a lot of where you're trying to hide that you're laughing. So some of the things that we do when we're, when we try to hide that we're laughing and I want to distinguish between like when Depp is, cause I read behavior for a living. So this is kind of where maybe my expertise can be offered this. I don't testify in court, <laughs> but um, what I, I want to qualify like Johnny Depp's laughing as opposed to her laughing. So, cause we see, we see them both like laugh with Amber Heard, I see her in her reactions to Depp's testimony when they cut to her and all of that. And and I've looked at a bunch of the reaction videos and I've seen a bunch of the highlights. 
And what happens is, is there's a couple of times where she will laugh and she's told really not to laugh. She will laugh and she'll do a few things. One is she'll bite the inside of her lip which is a thing that we do when we're trying not to laugh, when we're trying to hide that we laugh. And she also will will put her fingers or hands over her mouth, which is what, what we do when we're trying to hide the, our expression, whatever we're doing, usually a laugh. So she does a lot of that after the first day. Like the first day she was obviously very, very robotic and like try to give no expression. And then she must have been coached because when Depp was – being interviewed on on the stand she then had more expression and stuff but then what ends up happening unfortunately is when you tell someone with her sort of cluster of personality traits to sort of be a little bit more natural then you know a lot of this is going to start to come out and you're going to start to see things now she's trying to hold it back but she's doing all of these like micro expressions that tell you that she's trying to hold back and it's super uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to watch for me because Mm -hmm. i can see her her like trying so hard to do all of that and then i want to distinguish that between a difference between what i see in johnny depp which is we have an advantage with depp because you can watch years and years and years and years of his interviews. And so you want to establish a baseline. Right. Kathy, Kathy obviously knows this. It's like, what's the baseline and then what's different from the baseline? So people who aren't familiar with Depp might watch and be like, why is he talking so slow? And he stumbles over his words. Blah, blah, blah. But that is how he has That's spoken always, for decades. Yeah, yeah. He is always calm. He is always very... Act. He chooses his words and he speaks slowly and he he's cautious. He's an introvert. He's extremely shy. I imagine that's where uh, drug and alcohol abuse come from, you know, just like really struggling socially. So you see him laugh. But what you do is you see him laugh incongruently. He will laugh every time. There's almost every time, every almost every time he has to say something that is uh, he's embarrassed by or that's about him and and something awful he's done he will laugh and that is incongruent because it's not funny right he's laughing out of being uncomfortable Uncomfortable. he's not laughing like it's hilarious like oh the pain i'm gonna try to hide my laugh behind my Mm -hmm. hand right no it it is it's reactive and it's very transparent that's just my take no i agree with you and i i think that there's there have been people who have accused him of being an actor up there and all that. But I think that's a really good point to say, this is what, when we start working with a client, we establish baselines. That's how we know from week to week, if something's up, if they drastically change, we have all had years of watching him. Those of us who are, you know, fans of Johnny Depp as an actor and Shannon's right. This is, this is how he is in every interview. In fact, I think he uses acting as a way to uh, experience, other, uh, you know, affect yeah, and emotions. Absolutely. And there's mm-hmm. not to say, and I do want to qualify this with, there are times on the stand where I can also tell that he's hiding things. So it's not that he's lying. It's that yeah. he's using tactics like, not exactly denying, right? Like when he's asked a question, he, he'll answer it with a question or he'll make a joke or uh, when he's being cross-examined, he makes jokes. Like he'll deny one thing, but not another. You know, you ask him about all the drugs and he says, well, I wasn't drinking. And it's like, well, that's that yeah. isolated denial, right? Yeah. And then there's also sort of that, well, he doesn't deny it at all and he doesn't actually answer the question or he gives an answer to a different question and they're like, yeah, well, that wasn't the question I asked. So, Again, have not watched all the testimony. I plan to because we're going to talk about it at the very end and sort of give some mm-hmm. 
other comments, but whenever he's talking about his drug and alcohol use, you can tell that there are things he is attempting to hold back and that he could be quote unquote lying by omission about. Mm -hmm. But also what I also know is that that is a common trait of anyone who is addicted to drugs or Mm -hmm. alcohol is to not necessarily believe they're lying or think about lying but to especially when he's being tried in the court of public opinion as well is that you can tell that johnny is attempting to save his reputation and get back to work and so anything having to do with his inability to function with drugs the drug and alcohol issue you can tell he's trying not to give the whole truth of course and and there's a degree of that i understand right self-preservation he's already been defamed so he's like can i hold a little bit of this but yeah yeah, but it's also the pressure of being in court and everything that you say will be but held I just want you. it to be more balanced yeah like, I'm not no. saying he's not lying I'm just saying no, that there are not. topics that he is lying about or holding back and there's topics that I don't think he is sure and I think the same for Amber is you know I think that a lot of the things that she has said now whether we have the full context to what she's saying is a different story but I mean we we know that the, this was a relationship that was very combative I want to bring up the the difference between mutual combat and reactive abuse though Because when we look at cases like this, it's really easy to say, well, this is a mutual combat. It's hard to say. There is usually a dominant aggressor and the dominant aggressor is not always the male. It is 90% of the time to be real. But if we are going to look at DV constructively and earnestly, we also have to recognize that a perpetrator can be of any gender, any size, any color. Um, we don't, I wasn't there. I don't know. I can't say for sure, but there is a possibility that what Johnny was enduring was constant provocation and engaging in what we call reactive abuse, which is when an abuser is poking and poking and poking and poking and poking. And then the, the combination of his drugs and alcohol, which is bad on his end, Mm -hmm. he gets to a point where he cannot handle it and he lashes out the only reason i'm drawing this conclusion is i watched the couple's counselor and i watched her depo tape and she did say that it was really interesting to watch them as a couple in in counseling and to watch them individually and he she said he was actually quite verbal when amber was not in the room because she steamrolled every single conversation in there and he couldn't get a word out edgewise but what she had concluded was he was the one that attempted to de-escalate every single time and so if she's telling the truth then there's a possibility of reactive abuse and i i want to be clear i'm not justifying reactive abuse i'm just saying it's a very different way to look at the situation want to be careful about how we look at it yeah and then lastly with amber too is we look at we have to look at when she does testify she also tends to give too much detail there's an amalgamation of facts where she kind of loses people in the question i know johnny's done that a little bit too so that's also there on that side and then lastly i'll say when we are looking at this from a psychological perspective we really want to take history into consideration as well and we do know that um Johnny's collaterals state one thing. And we also know that Amber does have a history of aggression and abuse in other relationships, which again, doesn't mean that Johnny wasn't combative, but they were not a good duo because if this is, if she is cluster B and is already coming in with this and that's part of his character, if he's with the wrong person, this is just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And I'll just give my last thoughts for today and and we'll, we'll follow up on this in the future when all is said and done. But 
What I have gathered so far in my broad look at this is that Johnny had a relatively abusive mother. He loved her, took care of her till the end, but but she was uh, an abrasive person. It sounds like from what from what I've read, and Amber had uh, has I believe he's still alive, more of a difficult father figure. So I don't know the details, but and so and so there's that piece, which is a broad stroke, but something to think about. And I really see Johnny as a very depressed, avoidant type of personality. Mm -hmm. He tries to, there's lots and lots of testimony about how he avoids. And that is also very common of substance users. And very triggering for a partner. And very triggering, especially for a person who may have a borderline personality or histrionic personality, because she's going to come off with to as reactive and dramatic. And so if you have an avoidant person with a person that really needs control and answers and lots and lots and lots of verbal acumen and support, which someone with the that cluster is going to need, you've got him running away, her chasing him, and then him exploding. You know, you've just got that depressed, avoidant personality with this much more verbal, much more reactive personality. That's just like from the very beginning, I can see why chemistry wise, they were drawn to each other because you're wanting a little bit of what that other person has. But then over time, and then you add substances and money and fame and and microscope in the culture and like whoosh. Yeah, it's 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 a perfect storm of shit. Yeah. So in Kathy's estimation, it's a perfect storm it's of shit. It's a perfect shit, storm and that's of where shit. We'll end for today. <laughs> Clinically so speaking. If you <laughs> come back and hear more about the lighter side of what we do, which is a whole lot of movie watches and books and such. So we shall be right back. <laughs> Hello, everyone. So now on the show, what we do, what we generally do for for those of you, not yet, for those of you who may be new, is we talk about our books and movie watches, series, different things that we do in the horror, thriller, etc. genre. Every now and then there's something else that comes in, but this is what we do now. So I think we both would like, we have a book club. For those of you who might be interested in reading horror thrillers on the regular, we have a book club in our Discord, which is part of our Patreon membership, which is, you know, it's five bucks a month, basically, the the lowest tier. And for that, you can be in the Discord, you get all of our extra content on Patreon, because we do a mini cast every week, etc. But our most recent read was The Exorcist. I... Obviously, we know this is a classic book. Yes, that's why we wanted to read it. But I am going to say, and I'm going to make a pretty bold statement right now, because I've read a lot of books. Yeah, me too. One of my favorite books I've ever read. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, it was, uh, we have been reading some classics lately. 
We read Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. We read uh, Legend of Hell House. So the book club went down a little bit of a, a classic, classic route. Mm-hmm. And The Exorcist was the most recent. And I have to tell you, everybody was like, this book is awesome. It takes the movie and makes everything that you see in the movie makes so much more sense. It gives it so much more depth. And the the priest, Damien, his role is really the central role. It's not Chris. It's not Reagan. Yeah. And I, I guess I guessed that was going to be the case. Like I didn't know I had never read the source material, but I guessed it because Exorcist is one of my favorite all-time horror movies, and I had done a lot of reading about like the casting and everything, mm-hmm. and because the casting of that character was so important to them, and they spent all this time, and there were these, all, you know, I thought, wow, that character must be really like important. It's, yeah. it's the important relationship is yeah. Reagan and him, and I, I just feel like it's the perfect mix. You want, you yeah. want the book, you want the book, the source material to be exceptional and really flesh out the characters. Mm-hmm. And you want the film to be a film, not a book, so it's mm-hmm. not long and boring. Mm-hmm. You want it to be a film and filmic and cinematic, but have the essence and the core of what you have in the book. And yeah. I feel like this is that. It really it really is. And you also, um, at least what I picked up from it was, you get more of the why she was possessed. Mm-hmm. And it and in the Which movie, is what you expect from a good book, right? I mean, in the movie, they really simplify it to it being the Ouija board, but it is not that. It goes so much deeper than that, and you really realize that this is a book about uh, a priest who has lost his faith and the challenges that that come with, um, and and you know the sacrifices that come with walking back into his faith. Oh, I mean, yeah, really, really Reagan is really just a a a, a vehicle in the Demon. book. Yeah, um, but she's a kid possessed by a demon. <laughs> if anyone has, if anyone liked the film or has thought about reading it or just likes to read horror, this needs to be at the top of your list. Absolutely, highly, highly, highly recommend. Very excited. We're gonna, as part of that, as part of our book club's adventure. <laughs> if the book is a movie, we we try to schedule. I schedule the movie to be watched, and so we're gonna watch The Exorcist uh, this week. I'm starting to feel like my my favorite books have the word exorcism in it, <laughs> like my best friend's exorcism. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, welcome to loving <laughs> the trope of religious faith and exorcism in horror. Because that's my wheelhouse. I love it. I love it. I love it. Those are just both so well written. I I watched a hilarious, but it wasn't supposed to be hilarious <laughs> movie from I love that trash from 1981 um, with one of our guys, one of our patrons. He's on the Discord Snake, and we just together this became. Shannon was just saying before we we were got on to record this segment, how Snake and I have a lot of similar tastes. And, and we do. We like the old school slashers and cheesy ridiculousness. Um, and so this movie's called Ms. 45. It's also known as Angel of Vengeance. And it is, here's the description. Mm. A timid and mute seamstress goes insane after being attacked and raped twice in one day in which she takes to the streets of New York City after dark and randomly sh- uh, after dark and randomly shoots men with a 45 caliber pistol miss 45 so this is a, a debauchery of of 
just killing random men, even if they haven't done anything. Cause she, she obviously gets traumatized and the rape scenes are so awkward and weird at the beginning that when she, she gets raped, I'm not laughing at the rape, but she gets raped. She goes home to her apartment. She happens to get raped again that next hour. And snakes comment was like, Oh, Oh no, this is awkward. This is not, this can't be good. Like it was just so <laughs> weird. Like, Oh, yeah, oh, like, no. oh no, I can't, we can't do this again. No, like no, it was no. so uncomfortable. No, no, no. <laughs> and so she, um, she has a neighbor who's a lot like the neighbor in Rosemary's baby, but it has a oh, dog. Okay, okay. And it's like super, super nosy. <laughs> um, the dog becomes a big part of this film, but thankfully dog's okay. And, um, it is, it is what I think the girl with the dragon tattoo, the seriousness of that, at least the Swedish version, I think it attempted to have that flavor of revenge. In 1981. But this woman was literally would just like see a guy crossing the street and it was, it's like the old 1981 sound of the pistol. It's like, pow, you know, and like this hollow sound behind it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of like giallo style mixed. And then the soundtrack is all saxophone. Oh no. Like the eighties. And well, the blood is, is like light, bright red, like giallo mm-hmm. and the saxophone at the end. I mean, snake and I just kept the credits on just to go nuts just with the saxophone. It was, hilarious. it was something else. <laughs> I was, so I'm, as you're talking, as we do sometimes, I'm like looking at some of the reviews. Mm -hmm. and they're fun a gritty little nasty exploitation film (laughs) yeah is that kind of where you're going with it i don't know yeah yeah it's like uh it talks about there's no surplus exposition it just kind of she just starts shooting every man she sees and and i remember at one point we're like oh oh she's oh she's shooting him too like (laughs) he's not doing anything like she, she all of a sudden just hates men and goes out in the streets and starts like this guy is just like walking down the street and he's like she's like I'm, i'll just shoot him too <laughs> this one review might sum it up honestly this is a brilliant one hour and 20 minutes of ecstatic rage and vindication yes at one point she's dressed as a, a nun for a halloween party and just starts to blow everybody up dressed as a nun i mean the whole thing is just it might it sounds like a i mean it's obviously a female revenge film it is but, it, but mm-hmm. it, so it's that trope if you like that but it also sounds like because it's 1981 it's got a lot of, like, it's really cathartic. Well, and it's following things like A Cruel Picture, 1973, Death Wish, 1974, Taxi Driver, 1976. So it's coming off of that, like, right. victim, you know. Right. Without the money yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, she was something. <laughs> Beautiful actress who ended up um, actually dying quite young. I think of a drug overdose or something. Oh, but she, I mean, visu- like, visually, she was very beautiful. Uh-huh. It's, it's just hard to take serious. Obviously. Yeah. So I ended up seeing The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is Nick Cage's newest movie. How was that? It was fucking amazing. I mean, I just loved it. I I got to see it in the theater, so that was also cool. Cool. So it's comedy action. It's gotten really good reviews. It's rated R. Mm -hmm. Um, It's smart. It's funny. It's it's meta because Nick Cage plays Nick Cage. Yeah. I mean, like literally that's his character's name. He plays Nick Cage, the actor. funny. (laughs) Yeah. So let me just say... Nick Cage stars as Nick Cage, <laughs> creatively unfulfilled and facing financial ruin, which if you know anything about Nick Cage is kind of spot on, spot on. Yeah. The fictionalized version of Cage must accept a $1 million offer to attend a birthday of a dangerous superfan. So the superfan is played by Pedro Pascal. And if you don't know this actor, he's the guy that plays the Mandalorian who 
we love. He's so good. And he's, of course, been in a bunch of stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, like you had me at Mandalorian because he's so good in that role. He plays the super fan. And as you may or may not know, lots and lots of actors who need money will take a million dollars to show up at a birthday party or a wedding or some kind of event. And they're basically hired to just be there as themselves and sign autographs and be fabulous. And so this is where Nick in the movie finds himself. So, But then things take a wildly unexpected turn when Cage is recruited by the CIA, CIA operative who's played by Tiffany Haddish, who's hilarious. Oh, she's hysterical. And forced to live up to his own legend, channeling his most iconic and beloved on-screen characters in order to save himself and his loved ones. So this is Nick Cage at his fucking best because he's playing himself, playing himself in movies, than playing himself it's like so meta and so he has to play this character who doesn't know what he's doing but he also has to play the guy who does know what he's doing yeah and then going back and forth i mean i just want to say like thank you nick cage for doing this movie because (laughs) i thoroughly enjoyed it and i think it's absolutely he's so out of his mind in the best way oh my god well i mean i love him when he's out of his mind and he's doing ridiculous things like willie wonder willie's wonderland and all of that like i just love that yeah and i like nick cage a lot because of that Mm -hmm. and also he grew up in los angeles and was around back in the day Mm -hmm. and all of that and was friends with all of the kind of the 80s rat pack that was yeah. Low and all of them. So like I have that sense memory of him, but like, oh my God, Neil Patrick Harris is in it for a bit. Mm-hmm. I want to recommend this movie pretty highly. Awesome. It's hilarious. Yeah, I want to see it. Action and Nick Cage really knocks it out. I'll, of the I'll watch it and then, then I'll, we can review it together. I'll let you know what I think. You let me know. Um, so, I'll, you know, I always say I don't binge until I do. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with the flight attendant. Yep, I, I'm watching that too. I binged the first season and I'm caught up. I think I have to watch se- uh, episode five of season two. So for, if people have not seen it, first of all, Kaylee Cuoco really shows her acting chops, I think, on this show. And it's a, it's a great show because not only is it like mystery thriller drama, but there's also a mental health piece. You know, she's alcohol dependency. I mean, this is someone who is, is, uh, an alcoholic couldn't yeah. find the word for some reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to find like the politically correct way of saying That's it, but it. she's, she's, <laughs> she, um, is a really complicated character, but the show is a reckless flight attendant with an alcoholism problem, wakes up in the wrong hotel in the wrong bed with a dead man and no idea what happened. Unable to piece, uh, the night together. She begins to wonder if she could be the killer. So that's where uh, season one takes off. What I love about her in this show, though, is that there's so much to dislike about her and so much to love about her at the same time. And she plays that annoying side of someone that like if you love somebody who's also an addict, there is this side of you that really wants to protect them and love them. But you're also so flipping done with them at the same time. And her best friend who's an attorney on the show. She was on the series girls ha, embodies that. Oh God. She's hilarious. And, and I love her anyway. Yeah. Z- Z- Zosa or Zoja Mamet. I think her she's name amazing. is amazing. She was really good on the girl. On yeah. And girls. girls, she was great on that. And she plays the best friend in this. And there's a lot of really good actors on uh, mm-hmm. uh, throughout. And I want to say that Kaylee mentioned, I have, it's not, hasn't been released yet unless it's an episode five that Sharon Stone plays her mother. Mm it's really a great combination of, of thriller and comedy and mental health. And, and I, it is a binge worthy show that I've just really fallen in love with. And I just think she's 
done an awesome job on the show. I agree. I binged the first season when it first came out. And then uh, I think I'm only on episode two of the second season so far. It'll be one of those things where I just sit down one day and watch the rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever's... I just have to be in the mood. I binged a bunch of them. And I, I think I rewatched... To, to watch season two, I rewatched like the last couple of season one because I, it had been a while. Okay. And so I did that. And then I, I watched the first two. And so obviously I have a few. And I don't like to... I don't like to get to the end and then wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'm letting like five and six now accumulate because I got through to all through four and I was like, oh, damn. That's pretty much I what I fast. did. That's pretty much what I did. So anyway, I, I recommend it. It's good. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I recommend it highly as well. It's a really good one. I watched a movie called Virus 32. Sounds amazing. 20, <laughs> shut up. 2022 horror, 90 minutes long. A virus spreads throughout the city, causing the infected to become vicious hunters. Iris and her daughter become caught in a massacre, discovering 32-second periods of calm before each attack. It's got that a little bit of a unique twist where there's, I'm not going to give it away. It's a, it's a Spanish language film, and I'm not going to give away like why that is, but there are 32-second periods where the zombies will stop. Okay. <laughs> Vampires, zombies, whatever they are, it's got that un- a unique twist, so it's a little bit worth a watch in that way. It kind of, it attempts to kind of breathe new life, I guess, into the, well, I will say it, the zombie genre, which is, I, I mean, you could say it's been done to death. Aha! Oh yeah, God, that fell flat. Yeah, I laughed. Mm. It it really has been done to death, honestly. And I'm just about to. I actually scheduled it for for next weekend, but we're just about to watch the sadness, which is a new zombie film coming out, and I'm really pretty excited about it because it's supposed to be just ridiculously violent, over the top. So I'm looking forward to that. But speaking of zombies. This one, it's like, it's a clever gimmick, but I don't think it really landed as far as like being revolutionary or fabulous or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's violent. It's claustrophobic. It's very much, the, the director is very much concentrated on the tight shots and the, and the personal story and following them. So it's very dark. It's stylish, certainly. As, but you know what? Most new movies are. In a lot of ways, yeah. they're they're pretty stylish, so the, they're shot pretty well. But I like Spanish language films usually. Like I will watch it again. I did enjoy it. I think it's worth a watch for you guys. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I was not expecting it to be any good, so that might have been part of it <laughs> okay. that it was unexpected. Sure, and there were always unex- nice. Yeah, and there were unexpected parts, and it was also very creepy and dark, and it was also very brutal. And those are things that. I tend to enjoy. So very good. Virus 32. Yeah. Okay. I watched a movie. My, I have a student in um, one of my sections. She, she and I always talk about horror together mm-hmm. and she's like, Dr. B, you got to see this movie. I said, okay. And she goes, I just want you to know, I want to know what you think. She never tells me what she thinks till after. And we, we, we agreed. We had a similar reaction to this. So the movie's called the night house. Uh, it's a 2021 psychological horror film directed by David Bruckner. Beth has just lost her husband, Owen, to suicide. Devastated, she spends her nights drinking and going through Owen's belongings. She tries to appear stable and in control, but her friend Claire and neighbor Mel are concerned for her. 
Owen's ominous suicide note. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. Perplexes her. She begins to suffer from strange supernatural events at night and finds a strange reversed floor floor plan in their house. Really good concept for a film. I actually think that I would have enjoyed this film if it wasn't Rebecca Hall playing the main character. She just wasn't likable. You're supposed Mm. to really feel for the loss of her husband. You're supposed to be protective over her. You're supposed to be rooting for her. Uh And I think if it would have been anyone else, Mm. this movie would have been, because the ending is awesome. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't because her performance annoyed the crap out of me. Uh, it's it's on my list actually. It's I'll be been curious on my to list hear for what a you while think. because it got this like really early critical acclaim. Yeah, the audience acclaim not so much, but this really early critical acclaim. It's been on my list and list, and every time I go to watch it, I'm like, ah, you know how that goes. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's almost two hours long, and mm-hmm. I think that's what has been sure. holding me back. And so I know that it's going to be slow. I think I watched it in two parts. Yeah, um, see there. That's what we have to do these days. Our our attention deficit disorder is right like on fire because we're used to but the ninety minute. I think the story. I think you'll dig the story, um, cool. especially because you don't mind the slow burn. And then once I it don't. once it picks up, mm-hmm. um, the way like the second half of the film, you don't feel like you're just continuing to it. Okay, it starts to to really get somewhere and you know so there's like an invisible man quality of it and some some things that happen in there but I just I don't know and my student said the same thing she goes yeah I didn't like her either and I said it made it really hard to get into the movie because the plot was awesome did you find it confusing at all because that's one of the things I read was that it like it got confusing and you kind of like everything needed clarification later like so you didn't get any of that I feel like the ending does I'm trying to remember if I had to look any of it up, but I do mm-hmm. think that like, I, I understand that. I do think that I, for the most part understood. I think there were a couple of things that I did have to look up, but I will say that even though I had to do that, the movie, if you go back to it, it does line up. It's not like they just pulled it out of nowhere. Gotcha, it gotcha. just, yeah, there are a lot of things that happen where you're like, wait a minute now, who's this? And then what? But then when you, you figure out the ending, you're like, okay, it does it does make sense. It does try. Yeah, it's just it's just really convoluted. Gotcha. All right. Well, we have come to the point where <laughs> I get so excited, but I keep my mouth shut so I don't get yelled at. Are you ready? Yeah. Misery was almost turned into a Broadway play with oh. what famous actor as Annie Wilkes? King vetoed the idea because she did not fit the brawny profile. I read about this and I don't remember her name. She's the sister on Roseanne. No. Oh, okay. She's pretty woman. Oh, Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. Oh Lord. That's right. That's an awful. Cast. Who would have casted her? I love Julia, but cast. not for that. No, okay. no. I uh, just wanted someone super famous to get sell tickets. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> Spielberg didn't want her as Tinkerbell either. Oh, but she was good in that. No, they didn't get it. They, they did not have a good time on set together. Those no, two. I know. But I liked her on that. I thought she was great in that. I think he ended up being okay with it. But I think if initially he was not crazy about that casting. Okay, fine. And I'm team Steven as much as I love Julia. Mm-hmm. Number two, when composer John Williams, oh, speak of the devil, originally <laughs> played the score for Steven Spielberg. What was Spielberg's reaction? He loved it. 
He laughed oh. and he said, that's funny, John, really? But what what did you really have in mind? Uh. Um, and then Uh-oh. Spielberg. That's when the composer's like, bummer. Yeah. And then Spielberg later stated it was the reason for the success. <laughs> Uh, I would have loved to be in that room where the composer had to make his case. Yeah. Well, it was John Williams, though. He probably went, seriously, fuck off. I've done Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, could you trust me, please? Yeah. Right here? I think that's why they were able to have that kind of, he's like, okay, you're fucking with me. Yeah, but no. No, this is it. And it was worked so well. That's nice. In 1800s, how were dentures made? Mm, the casts of dead people. The teeth of dead soldiers. Oh, I got it. I, I'm going to say I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> The teeth of dead Truly a guess. soldiers. Truly a guess. See, I if you it. remember that it's a horror fact, exactly. you won't be like the teeth of dead giraffes. Like you'll know it's something, you know. <laughs> Number four. How many? Okay. Well, I got it right. You did. How many different sounds can a cat make? 243. 100. <laughs> Compared to dogs who can make about 10 sounds, each sound, <laughs> this sense. is funny, each sound has a special purpose can manipulate their voice. They can actually manipulate their voice to uh, imitate a human baby when they're hungry. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Actually. Cats are so fucking smart. Yeah. They're so manipulative. So manipulative. And that's, you know, part of the smarts survival. Yeah. (laughs) Number five, what part of the body are all babies born without the top of their head? Kneecaps formed by six months. Why they crawl on their arms when they first start to crawl. Top of their head too. Yeah. It's soft. Soft, Yeah. But they actually don't have kneecaps. Okay. Who would have known that? Maybe mothers, fathers, anybody who has kids. Yeah. Which is an us, obviously. Which is, I mean, my dogs never <laughs> We're crawl. like, horrified. If my dogs crawled on their arms, I'd be like, they need a wheelchair. Yeah, okay. right? Like, this is a problem. We need we need some some occupational therapy. Thank you so much for that, Kathy. And thank you all for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 